Equity is brought to you by ExaCrunch, that prodigious TechCrunch paywall you keep running into. You can break through that paywall at a steep discount if you use the promo code equity. If you do, you'll get access to our best stuff and you'll make equity look really good internally at the same time. Enough of that, let's start the show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I am joined today by my absolute two favorites. The whole gang is here today. We have Natasha Moscarenas from Jersey. Natasha, how is life? Life is good. I finally have my podcast set up back so I don't have to pretend like I'm a broadcaster every time we record. So I feel loose. I feel ready to dance while I talk. And I'm really glad to have all of us back on the show together. The problem for Natasha now, for everyone out there who doesn't podcast, is now she has no excuse for poor mic control. So now she has to keep the mic where it's supposed to be. She's not holding it. Yeah, it's, it's rough. Speaking of bad posture, we have Danny Crichton here as well. Danny, hi. First of all, I have good posture. Second of all, I have a new mic coming. So this mic, which is a totally acceptable mic, but apparently is not acceptable to some people in this room, all of us. is getting replaced thanks to uh, <laughs> thanks to a budget surplus at TechCrunch. <laughs> is that budget surplus entitled your last year's bonus? Okay. Yeah, um, exactly. Yes, all so. $100. Yes. <laughs> All right, listen, we actually have we have a really great show today because many, many important and big and fun things have been happening. We're going to kick off with the absolutely unavoidable Coinbase direct listing. We know it's Friday morning, and so you've probably digested this a little bit. We're going to go over the highlights, the key things, make sure you're all caught up, but we're not going to bang on it too long. We also have the Grab SPAC, which matters because super apps are hot. We love to see other companies from different countries list in the US. And also, why the hell is this a SPAC? Many questions there. We're going to riff a little bit on a new EdTech unicorn, pivot into Tiger Global, talk about a couple of startups there. And then we're going to wrap with pizza because everyone essentially loves carbs covered in cheese, slathered in hot sauce. And that's the show. Natasha, where do you want to start off? I think we have to start off at crypto for some reason, because I think a company went public this week. Coinbase direct listed. It set a reference price of about 250 per share, but ended up closing the day at 328. And I think now while we're recording is at 342. So a lot of money and everyone was talking about it. Alex, how was the coverage? What did you kind of learn the day of and what should people be thinking about now that It's been a minute since it happened. Well, it was fascinating to see the reference price come out because everyone immediately in my DMs and via email and and everything, even just talking to people at TC was like, well, that's too low. And shockingly enough, it was. I think we saw a lot of exuberance when the shares began to trade. It spiked to, I think, over $400 a share for a short period of time. The company's valuation topped $100 billion for a bit. It was what we expected. I mean, Danny, we all thought this was going to be a, a big darn deal, and it ended up being a big darn deal. I think the timing is just so propitious for Coinbase. You know, Bitcoin is at an all-time high. The excitement around this, just today, you know, S&P 500 and Dow are all-time high. So you just couldn't nail the timing better. Yep. And look, Coinbase has high fees. I mean, one of the things that I was reading about is Coinbase is actually worth more than the New York Stock Exchange's parent company, wow. which, you know, handles trillions of dollars more assets on a regular basis than Coinbase. But because of those fees, because of the, the market that Coinbase finds itself in, you know, just incredible revenues, incredible numbers. Huge surge in activity last year. I just think you couldn't have nailed it better, like almost down to the day, down to the hour. Yeah, I want to talk about the fee thing because I was talking to Tom from IVP who led the Coinbase series, oh gosh, D, I think it was back in 2017. I think it was about a $100 million round. And we were just riffing on the company's place in the, the broader crypto market. And he was like, you know, people really thought that Coinbase was going to end up looking like a traditional exchange. You know, similar margins to equities exchanges like Danny's talking about. 
And it, it hasn't been the case. Now, certainly there will be fee pressure on Coinbase over time, but the company's ability to generate outsized fees for its kind of, um, I don't know, loose AUM, if you will, or kind of how much crap it has on the exchange, he says is predicated on its other services. It offers storage, it offers kind of connectors to other elements of the crypto world and so forth. So it's going to be really fun to see long term how much of its kind of like revenue base or kind of fee ability Coinbase can maintain in the face of competition and also, a, you know, an evolving cryptocurrency landscape. This is one of those times where being early makes such a big difference. So Coinbase launched in 2012 and has a really quintessential startup story. I think I saw the co-founders met on Reddit. They went to YC. <laughs> they gave out Bitcoin during interview processes. And I think being first and being kind of so bold to bet on crypto and just being a simple way to buy and sell Bitcoin in 2012 was crazy. And even though today it makes so much sense down to the hour, Danny, like you said, that is something that still surprises me that they did. The magic here is still that the UX is the easiest among all the crypto wallets. Right? Yes. It's, it's, it's yeah. the brand name. It's the easiest way to on-ramp. And to me, like that's where the fee pressure just hasn't arrived. People don't know how to trade on any alternative platform. That will change in the coming decade. And I think the question is, you know, will the scale of the crypto market and the number of tokens sold across everything exchange given the fee pressure that's going on? Like which 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 trend is going to outreach in the 2020s is going to be the Coinbase story going forward. And just before we move on, the thing about Coinbase that was amazing to me was they dropped their preliminary Q1 numbers a couple of days before they direct listed. And what they did was they had a great 2020, very impressive growth throughout the second half of the year, just stellar numbers. And then in the first quarter of this year, they went batshit crazily good. Like it was, it was, it, I've never seen a company go from a Q4 to a Q1 like that ever. And, and I mean, probably including companies like Hoppin, you know, Slack back in the day. I mean, to think about the impressive growth stories, that Coinbase quarter was amazing. So I, I just hats off to their timing on this and, uh, and, and shout out to all the people out there who should um, buy TechCrunch and give me a billion dollars. Thank you. <laughs> well, Coinbase certainly grabbed the attention of the market. There was another company that's grabbing attention, which is Grab itself, the Southeast Asia super app, as they are dubbed. Alex, you're uh, talking about their massive blockbuster deal, but they didn't direct list. They're going out the other alternative route. Yeah, they're going out via a SPAC. And uh, if you think about SPACs as only being you know a couple hundred million dollars and a couple billion dollars in valuation, the grab SPAC, including its pipe, which means other money kind of coming into the transaction, that's four and a half billion. And grab is going to be worth just about 40 billion when it actually lists. And this has been fascinating. Guys, have you been watching at all? Like what's been going on with Uber and Lyft and kind of the ride share market in the last year? Yeah. Eh. <laughs> I haven't taken a Lyft or an Uber in at least a year, which is basically a sign of the market. One thing I will say, though. I feel like my perception on Uber and Lyft's ride-hailing businesses specifically is that they're unprofitable. So one thing that stood out to me about Grab when I was reading your coverage is that their actual ride-sharing business is profitable, question mark? So Uber, their ride-hailing business is by itself profitable, but the company itself is not. And so it doesn't contribute enough positive adjusted EBITDA to uh, help the company itself not lose money. Okay. And Grab is a similarly complex business. It has a ride-hailing business, which is the most profitable of its segments. It has a deliveries business, which grew like mad, a bit like Uber Eats did last year. And then it also has some financial stuff because it is a super app that will do more than one thing. And it also has some other kind of enterprise revenues, which is really kind of a dusting of income down there at the bottom. But, you know, they didn't have the most impressive gross merchandise volume growth last year. It was just 12.2 to 12.5 billion. But... Their adjusted net revenue grew 60% to 1.6 billion. So there is a growth story there. And certainly, you know, people are really expecting this company to, to be able to scale in the Southeast Asian market across these different ways that it approaches doing business for the next couple of years. And I don't hate it. 
I don't. This is this spack doesn't make me want to vomit into my own hands. How cool is that? If you told me a year ago a larger spack merger ever has ever been announced, I would have been like, what does that mean? What is this back? And now a year later, like that is genuinely interesting and exciting, which is just like, how did this happen? How did SPACs become a thing? We didn't want them to become a thing. Well, ironically, <laughs> it's the bigger SPACs that to me make total sense, right? These are established companies, real revenues. You yeah. know, it's super late stage. I mean, the alternative would have just been an IPO. And to me, this is like a, a cheaper, faster, more efficient way to IPO a company, particularly one that didn't struggle in 2020. But like the picture is much more complicated than Coinbase for sure. But it's not the only major news we had in the Southeast Asia market. The information was reporting that Gojek and Tokopedia Gojek, I believe, is in the ride-hailing space. Yes. Tokopedia is in the e-commerce space. Are potentially going to fuse, combining their names of Gojek and Tokopedia into GoTo, which is actually, I think, one of the more brilliant marketing. I, I give credit on that one if that comes together uh, in an eighteen billion dollar merger. So a ton of action going on in the super app e-commerce ride-hailing space in Southeast Asia right now. One detail that I think is interesting between Gojek and Grab is that they are constantly two companies that like to time their announcements with each other. So Grab will announce a Series H, and then Gojek will announce a funding round. And then Grab announced that it's going through a SPAC merger, and now Gojek is going through something similar. And <laughs> I, I realized this because I was like, why is this triggering me that I'm seeing both of these companies together? And I, I saw that I had written a piece when I was at Crunchbase News Woo! about the never-ending Grab Series H. Do you guys remember that? Like, yes. they raised the Series H in 2018, I think, to 2020 or 2019 for two years. And I know it's a little bit off topic, but it no, is no, no, cool no. to see it kind of come full circle as they exit as well. What they're doing there is they're trying to avoid raising a Series Q and looking silly. So they're like, this is our Series H5. It's the fifth tranche of the same thing. And my, my favorite is when companies are like, well, it's our Series A1. I'm like, why is it an A1? They're like, well, you know, our valuation went up 4X, but we're not really going to call it a B because we're not ready for that. I'm like, that's a B. That's the next round. All right. And going back a little bit, Natasha pointed out that she was uh, finding SPACs to be interesting and cool, which is evidence that she has spent too much time with myself and Danny, I think. Over the last, <laughs> last year. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a bad sign. That's a sign that you need a therapist, uh, a SPAC <laughs> therapist or whatever the case may be. But to point out, Gojek and Tokopedia are the two largest uh, unicorns in Indonesia today. Yes. Gojek worth $10.5 most recently, and Tokopedia $7.5 So major exits from the Indonesian market, which is one that we've been slowly kind of trickling in more and more over the last couple of years at TechCrunch. But let's put a pen in the massive, the epic, and the monstrously sized companies and pivot to a more modest single-digit unicorn. Natasha, going to the edtech space, Degreed, a company that I need you to explain to me, is now worth $1.4 What's going on? Yes. So it raised $153 million this week and, like you said, became a unicorn. Degreed has had a really fascinating trek in the edtech world, which has been really common for kind of any edtech company born in 2012, has gone through many iterations before it's finally joining the unicorn club. So I will handle what it does now because that is all I really understand. And then Danny, maybe you can give us the background. So at its current moment, Degreed helps you identify the skills and gaps in your organization. So it works with the HR team of, let's say, TechCrunch, helps us see what skills we're missing out on and then helps fill in those gaps through content partners. The best way I think of understanding it is, is that it's like a more formal way to understand your staff and where they are strong and where they are weak. And I think in a remote work environment, especially, they've obviously had tailwinds of just companies being like, we need more information on our employees because we don't see them every single day. And this funding grant shows that 
there's obviously people willing to spend money on investing in that. I think that's exactly right. You know, when Degree got started years ago, I was actually reading our story from 2012 by Rip Empson. Hopefully he's still doing well, where the company's focus was on jailbreaking the degree. And the idea was yes. college has gotten super expensive. Everyone goes for what, what's known as the vellum effect or parchment effect, which is if you actually go through, you know, seven of the eight semesters in college, your income actually statistically doesn't go up all that much. But that last semester, when you finally get your degree, suddenly it like doubles. And so you're like, what's going on? Like, how can you go through three and a half years of college? You got most of the value of the degree. The economy doesn't recognize it. And that's because you don't have the certificate. You don't have the degree. And so Degreed itself was trying to jailbreak the certification and, and help companies adjust their hiring practices and say, what skills do people actually have? You know, can we give them sub skills? Can we give them certifications for coding or web design or whatever the case may be? And I, I just think in the ed tech world, that model of like focusing on the testing and the certification just didn't work. And boot camps really entered that market. And so Degreed over the last couple of years has just completely shifted from, I would say, the consumer hiring approach to the kind of learning management course delivery for enterprises area. And that's a field we've seen a lot of transitions in in tech over the last decade. You know, I'm fascinated by this company, and I think that there is so many cool ed tech companies are trying to disrupt the traditional degree, break it up, jailbreak it, improve it, atomize it, make it MOOC, whatever. And I, I love that. I love that in the future, people will be able to get, you know, kind of like micro certifications in, in tasks and skills and so forth. But I just wanted to raise my hand and be like, F all that. The four-year degree is great and studying liberal arts is fantastic. My entire like intellectual progress in my 20s and now into my 30s was predicated on reading hard shit with smart people around me and being told by even smarter people what I was reading about. And I just want to defend like the inefficiency of reading philosophy and being annoyed at, you know, old dead French dudes who couldn't write very well. But like it forced me to think about other things that weren't just career driven. You know, I mean, God, we don't have to turn college into effectively a trade school and an on ramp to Google. I think one of the biggest ironies in ed tech right now is there are so many founders who have had four year degrees that are trying to, you know, say that four-year degrees don't matter and that, hey, you can be successful without one. Obviously, it's not that simple. So totally hear you, Alex. And I think Lambda School actually did something this week where they're creating a boot camp that would help them on-ramp people into Amazon. So literally exactly what you just said. Also, look at all these uh, startups that are like, we don't need people to go to college. And then look at how they recruit and look at where <laughs> they recruit and look at how they, they rate schools. I mean, like, like, look, I've been on hiring committees before. Come on. And like, if you think that you can just like get a micro degree and then go work at like company X, you're wrong. So I think there's a lot of pie in the sky in this here, Natasha, and you're right to call out the particular hypocrisy. But to be fair, though, I have to say, to be fair, I think access obviously does matter. It is happening. People are going to boot camps and getting hired at great tech companies like boot camps wouldn't be as big as they are right now if that was not true. There are so many issues, but I do think like not everyone can afford a four year degree like you, me, and Danny-ish, because Danny, you dropped out somewhere at some point. Not that you couldn't afford it, but you dropped out. So did you ever actually- We're, we're saying you're rich it? and lazy, Danny. Yeah. Did <laughs> did, do, do I need to say, uh, I dropped out of Harvard as a, as a PhD student. You forced oh, me wait, to say but, it. That was not my fault. I did not bring this topic But you graduated from up. Stanford. Somehow this conversation went on to, I did graduate from Stanford. Right. So okay. I, I, I am a miserable okay. failure so, and only graduated from Stanford. was a horrible example to bring up. But I just, I, I do feel like the biggest sell of these companies, I think, is price more than, you know, not everyone can afford it. Well, we're talking a lot about in school, but we also need to talk about out school, which is actually another tech startup. So not only is education happening inside the classroom, but obviously for kids and for adults, people need education outside of the classroom as well. 
And so OutSchool offers, you know, activities, I guess most of it is virtual now in 2020, but the idea is to, you know, all those extracurricular activities you do, art, music, et cetera, can you schedule those classes, find tutorials, small groups, et cetera. And OutSchool is doing extraordinarily well. So we're entering into what I, I guess you would call the Tiger Global section, which is really what this pot, we should just rebrand the whole podcast. Yeah, let's point. do that. <laughs> what Tiger did this week? Sponsored by Tiger Global. Week, just I mean, this hour, I mean, we probably have four rounds that we've already missed in the last 60 minutes, but OutSchool raised 75 million in Series C, led by Co2 and Tiger Global, valuing the company at $1.3 billion, And that's four times higher than $320 million valuation just a year ago. So huge success going on here. But Alex, I guess we learned a lot about its growth over the last year, which, which is insane. Yeah, I was very impressed with this. I got to read, I think it was Natasha's story on this. And the company has done a couple of things. One, it's grown rapidly, but also there's been a revenue mix shift that has turned the company in from more like kind of single time revenue into more recurring revenue, Natasha. And now I think ongoing classes are half of its top line. Yeah, it used to be 10% of its classes were ongoing and aka stable revenue. And and the rest were kind of one-offs of people being like, let's try this cool after-school marketplace. And so they've made a big effort on making it a more reliable, consistent place, which obviously is great for learners as well. Kids need to create a bond with their teachers. So now it's 50% of its business and has generated, I believe, more than 100 million bookings in 2020 compared to 6 million the year prior. And 500,000 in 2017. I mean, Jeez. half a million to six to 100 million in bookings is great. You know, we were joking about Coinbase and its success, but like, I mean, think about this real quick. I mean, six to a hundred million. I mean, how many startups get that kind of growth in a single year? Damn. It's absurd. That, that's, that's sort of the conclusion. We have nothing else to say on this. I mean, what, <laughs> what, what, what else could you possibly, possibly say? But I think the big question, I mean, not only is there a lot of growth at the company, but like, let's look at their investors. I mean, Tire Global, when it comes to growth and just the speed and alacrity which they are investing in today, I mean, they're everywhere. We're going to talk about two more rounds from them in just a second here. But Alex, you read a piece this week about Tire Global. What are your thoughts? So there's, there's a Substack piece going around, what I call it the dork finance tech Twitter circles. And what it does... <laughs> can you get a micro certification in that? Um, yeah, oh, you can no. get a nano degree in <laughs> how to be a, 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 a dweeb that gets beat up on. No, I mean, I mean this is my Twitter group, so I'm, I'm only making fun of myself. We will throw a link to the Substack article in the show notes over on TC. But what it did was provide a breakdown of what Tiger Global does and what it, it's disrupted in the VC world. And if you think about venture capital traditionally, not in the last 24 months when things have been shaken up, but there were things like intensive due diligence. You know, VCs would call up customers. They would talk to your employees, your ex-employees, talk to your competitors, really get a feel for the market, look through all your numbers, tons of diligence, data requests, all this kind of, you know, like a, like a, like a deep surgery into a company. And then they might invest and they would demand board seats and input. And, and it was really an onerous process, frankly. Fundraising sucked. Tiger Global is changing all that. They're rolling into companies that have established growth and that have, I would say, software-like economics, which is kind of a proven part of the startup world. They're showing up, they're making deals very quickly. They have a fast time to conviction, as the slang goes, and they don't demand a lot of control. They just don't. They don't need a board seat. They don't need to be so involved. And so the idea that VCs are value add and blah, 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 they're going, eh, what if we just show up, contribute your valuation, write you a big check, and then f*** off? And it turns out that works. And so that's why everything you've read lately is Tiger Global. It's been the Tiger show for the last, gosh, I don't know, four or five months, guys. You know, I went into the show thinking that I was going to compare Tiger Global to like the next SoftBank kind of effect on venture. But I actually think it's completely different. I think it's rewriting the way that these gigantic funds invest. And I'm actually hearing early stage funds that I've talked to be like, we are starting to care less about ownership too. And that's huge for early stage funds. Ownership is all they really have. 
especially at that stage. And so I think Daigo Global is having this ripple effect at more than just printing unicorns. And I think SoftBank never really dripped down into the same way. And just before I let Danny have his interesting point, I want to point that Everett Randall wrote this and the Substack posts headline is playing different games. Part of the Substack entitled The Valley of Dunning-Kruger. Danny, sorry, back to you. No, I think one of the things you're starting to see with Tiger Global is sort of a rebuild of the investment bank, right? If you think of what investment banks did in the past, this is sort of the new model, right? It's delivering different types of capital. It's delivering everything from equity investment to credit investment to debt to, you know, SaaS securitization. I'm not saying Tiger Global necessarily does all of that, but one of the things I'm seeing with these venture firms is they're starting to offer all the traditional services that a bank used to offer, plus growth sort of services, right? So how to grow quickly, growth marketing, recruiting, engineering, talent development, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so to me, like all these firms are kind of creating the next generation investment bank, which is not just financing you, but also helping you grow successfully long-term. Yeah. Let's turn the page as it were. I don't have a good dad joke segue. That's just what I got for you to a company called Papa, which is also a Tiger Global deal. And Tasha, this is in the elder tech space, which I believe means that it's technology aimed at our parents. I'm going to call it the wise tech space. Like, let's officially call it now. It's for people who are wise. Oh, I, th I thought you said wives tech. I'm like, that's <laughs> sexist and regressive at the same time. Absolutely not. Wise. Sorry, I speak too fast. I'm from no, the fine. Northeast. But in all seriousness, Papa raised a 60 million Series C led by our, our sponsor of today, Tiger Global. <laughs> it's actually definitely a joke. So I don't want anyone to ever think that we're sponsored by a VC fund on this show. Anyways, they are a Miami-based company, and they basically offer care and companionship to seniors and pair them with what they describe as a papa pal. And they've obviously pivoted to virtual due to the pandemic, and I think are one of the most successful Miami startup stories currently. I can see that. I mean, famously, Florida is full of old people. I was going to say, this is such a growth market in Florida. <laughs> is it, though? Because old people, they get so wise, they stop. What? They die. I mean, <laughs> no. This conversation took a dark turn all of a sudden. I'm a very cut. positive company. I'm sure, <laughs> you know, I will say as a joke, as a side note, uh, I was reading the Wall Street Journal Innovation Report stuff. And one of the ongoing jokes they always have is like the biggest churn problem for the Wall Street Journal is that its subscribers die. Yes. But nonetheless, I think with Papa, it expects five to six million members on the platform by 2022. What's interesting is that they're also getting into the insurance game. And I, I think that that's the real magic here long term. It's not just offering this as a service where I think a lot of folks would be willing to pay. It is you know, a way you can actually get it funded by others, namely the government through Medicare and Medicaid. So really a, a huge option here going forward. And critically, many older people feel lonely. Yeah, I think that that's part of the magic of Papa is being able to connect with others in a similar life situation and a similar point uh, in the journey and finding camaraderie at a stage in which, yes, there are people who disappear from your lives over time and that can make you feel very lonely. Yeah, I think that in the digital age, we take for granted how connected we are in our little age group and you know where we work and all that. That's just not the case for a lot of folks. A lot of folks live alone or they live in a very kind of other lonely existence and that's awful. And so I joked earlier, but I really do actually kind of dig what Papa is doing and the fact that it's a good venture-backable business at the same time is even more exciting because maybe we can see this spread out to more areas of high senior slash wise concentration around the U.S. and the world. And we can take better care of our elders because God knows it's only a couple of decades until we're them. So, you know, let's uh, let's treat them the way we want to be treated down the line. To put my VC hat on, I think it is so smart to start charging elders for services. I just don't think there are as many startups that are focusing on it. One of my favorite ed tech companies who will be raising somewhat soon Basically, their entire pitch is, I want to give grandma 
a way to read to her grandchild. And so I'm going to create the service that helps me be the cool grandma. And that's a horrible way of pitching it. I butchered it, not the startup. But it's like these grandparents have, some of them have money that they can spend. So why not give them services as well instead of just yet another D2C White Claw knockoff from my age group? Let's tap that boomer wealth, you know? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, look, we have two more things to get through and they have nothing to do with this. So we're going to have to just move on from elder tech all the way to Danny's niche, chips. My transition was going to be a lot of boomers <laughs> wear Crocs and we don't want to talk about Crocs because that's unfashionable. But what is fashionable is Grok, which is G-R-O-Q. Gen Z started wearing Crocs too. I mean, Emma Chamberlain what? made it come back. Emma who? Oh, no. <laughs> okay, Alex, Wait, is Emma Chamberlain the singer from Driver's License? No, but love that you said that and that has to be in the show. Um, we'll, t- we'll catch up offline about Chamberlain. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to AI chip startup Grok, founded by ex-Googlers, raises $300 million to power autonomous vehicles and data centers. Danny. I love that you get to take away all the good facts. So, so Grok, <laughs> which again is GROQ, was founded by Jonathan Ross in 2016 at Google. He and his team created the Tensor Processing Unit, which is sort of the hardware version of doing AI chip workflows. Grok is building what they term a Tensor Streaming Processor. And so they're in this broad AI chip space. There's a bunch of companies in here that have raised a lot of money. This is one of the biggest rounds, though, at $300 million, led by, again, Tiger Global and billionaire investor Dan Sunheim. Previously, they raised $67 million from Jamat. So huge company big engineering team. They just delivered, I believe, their first chips, I want to say a couple of weeks, a couple months ago. So they're, they're in production, but like all chip companies, you know, we've got a long ways to go before they're going to be at scale, particularly now given the chip shortage globally. Okay, Danny, so I'm going to ask some dumb questions for everyone's sake here. We all know, for example, that CPUs or central processing units in computers are what runs the OS and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. GPUs are traditionally what I've used to play video games, but it also become very popular in the crypto world, for example, to mine because they're better suited to the, the work, if you will. TPUs, or tensor processing units, they are tuned to the artificial intelligence use case. I'm very curious about what's different about them that makes them better for that work. All these different workflows have different math, essentially. So, I mean, it literally, in the case of your general computers, it's mostly algebra, stuff you've done in high school, adding, addition, subtraction, multiplication. That's what your processor's doing all day. That's your typical Intel x86 processor, etc., Your GPU is more built around what's known as linear algebra, so matrix multiplication. So think of angles, you know, this is the ray tracing that you need in in graphics. You need to calculate a bunch of angles, a lot of trigonometry, and that's best done with linear matrix multiplication. That also happens to be really relevant to AI, and that's one of the reasons why NVIDIA is now the richest chip designer in the world. It's because AI actually is mostly matrix multiplication. TPUs are just designed to be a little bit more native to the kinds of math that AI products need. In addition, they also times have much larger memory capacity. So in order to process AI workflows effectively, you need a lot of memory on chip, on die, in order to process these huge data sets effectively. And so Grok, similar to a lot of these other companies, is designed to assume, okay, here's the AI workflows we're seeing in the world. This is what they need. Let's build a chip natively to go do that sort of work. And so it's a little bit more effective than, say, NVIDIA's GPUs. I'm going to ask one more simple question. Obviously, Nuvia sold to Qualcomm for $1.4 billion a few months ago. Is that the key way these kinds of companies exit? Or do you feel like, from your perspective, Grok is taking a different approach or if its technology is more comfortable going a public route, dare I say? Yeah, I mean, uh, th- these companies always have a very different path, right? So I would say there's a technology development phase, which is proving out the technology, showing that it can be work. And then there's this true, like, I mean, you call that the zero to one phase. 
And then in chips, you have the one to end, which is the manufacturing phase. You can export these chips and have them built by contract fabs. So obviously TSMC, most famously, Intel is now getting in the fab business for third-party companies with their Intel foundry. But that's a huge block for most startups, right? Because you're going from a world in which you're developing individual units to saying, okay, now I need to build 10 million of these chips. It's going to cost <laughs> billions of dollars to run that. And I have to sell them immediately because I have this inventory problem. And if I don't sell them immediately, there's a huge challenge. And so that's where most companies choose to exit. Okay. They've developed the technology. It's a stable business. And uh, companies like Intel, companies like Qualcomm go, we got a thousand customers lined up. We know how to sell. We have the money and the capital to handle the manufacturing stage. It's actually not so dissimilar from biotech. I was just about to say. Where you, you develop the drug, prove it out. Now all these big companies are like, great, we'll spend 15 billion. We know how to sell this and we'll make 30 billion in the next couple of years. So the question is, will any of these AI chip companies get there? Graphcore is now a multi-billion dollar company. Grok is a multi-billion dollar company. Cerebris is sort of reaching that stage. Nuvia sold huge traction here. And then, of course, you also have the large cloud providers, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, and Amazon, who are also building out their own AI chips for their own workflows. So you have all these different players going after a huge space. Okay, so to summarize for everyone, CPU is high school, GPU is college, and TPU is what Danny didn't finish at Harvard. All right, now. <laughs> we're going to go from hard to easy because we're going to talk about pizza now. It's a hard pivot. That was so cheesy, it makes me want to cry. Oh, no. Oh, no. The last round we want to talk about here, which is actually the first round that's not Tiger Global in this whole whole shebang, is is Slice, (laughs) which raised $40 million in Series D financing in the food delivery space. And all they do is pizzeria slice delivery. All they do. I mean, there's a lot of pizzerias. I mean, Denny, I I have heard various facts about how important (laughs) pizza is to the food delivery space. I I was curious, do you happen to have a factoid or two about why pizza is so central to the economy? I can't believe we have an inside joke about pizza. We we have an inside joke because every time we talk about pizza delivery, I always talk about how pizza is the delivery food of the United States. So my new fact, because I was yelled at prior to the show about how I always reuse my same set of facts, is among food companies, Domino's, Papa John's, Pizza Hut, are one of the only groups that actually sell almost exclusively themselves. They actually sell direct. So almost 100% of their sales are direct to consumer with no food app intermediaries in between. Yeah. They, they sell 99%. So that's my fun fact. Slice is actually focused on the independent pizzeria market. So they don't have the big players. They're focused on your local down the street pizza joint, so to speak. And what's interesting is they charge a fixed $2.25 per order. They now waive it for orders under 10 bucks. And so it's designed to actually empower a lot of the independent pizzerias that were struggling in, in sort of the digital world to successfully sell direct to consumer. Doing super well, they raised a 43 million Series C last year, and they launched a registered product, so a point of sale to compete with Square and others. So they're just becoming this like one-stop box, if you will, in the pizza space. And, you know, one note on that funding round, I feel like it used to be really interesting when startups raised twice within the year. And now I'm just expecting it. Like, it's not surprising to me when they say, like, I was raising a Series C six months ago. I'm like, of course you were. And I think Slice, you know, taking away the pizza angle, it is at its core is just yet another one of those tools that helps small, medium sized businesses have an online presence. Shopify effect, basically. And Slice is proving that it can be as specific and niche as pizza delivery. I think that's right. And I think the key thing you have to ask going forward is like, you know, I still order pizza through Seamless and Uber Eats, et cetera. I think the key is, will Slice eventually become your default when you say, ah, I want pizza. I'm just going to click on Slice. And if they can own that habit, if they can like own that for a large percentage of the population in the United States, much like Food Panda is trying to do that with Chinese food, because we always bring up Food Panda when we talk delivery. You bring up Food Panda. (laughs) I bring up Food Panda because I love it. Chinese food is great. Uh, Instead of pizza when you don't want pizza. 
But let's just say, like, if you can own these individual habits, like, that just leaves the remnants of a, a fairly small food delivery market for everyone else. In that vein, they are building out slash rewards, which lets you kind of get rewards across multiple independent pizzerias. But I just did a little bit of math that I wanted to bring up for everybody. So they have about 15,000 pizzerias on their platform, which, to be clear, is really impressive given how hard it is to sign up SMBs for anything. And in 15,000 stores, let's presume 50 orders that go through slice per day per pizzeria at 225 a piece would give them, I think this is $1.7 million a day in revenue. Now, that's too high. So I'm doing some math from there wrong. But it goes to show how 225 an order across that many pizzerias, which sell a lot of pies, does add up to a material revenue stream. So Slice is, is, is no joke, y'all. This is pizza legit, apparently. <laughs> I think the coolest thing for a startup that is in this world to be working on now is how to make your most loyal customers even more loyal. I love that. That is the future of e-commerce. And so I'm sure we will get a slice of more. And let's just say, if you're interested in e-commerce and personalization, we've got a big package coming out editorially on Extra Crunch on Monday. Wait for a drop. The next DC one is coming. Drop. It's like a shoe drop, but less cool. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, speaking of loyalty, thank you for sticking with the show through all these years. We adore you. You are tremendous and you look fantastic today. I'm Alex. We have Natasha and Danny here. Grace is behind the scenes, pulling this all together. We're back on Monday morning. Goodbye. Goodbye.